Hey, it's Max. I've got a podcast recommendation for you before we start. It's a new show, five-part series. It's called Suspicious Activity, Inside the FinCEN Files, and it's a co-production of BuzzFeed News and Pineapple Street, which is where I work when I'm uh, not working on long form. In this series, it's an investigation. It's an investigation into how money works in the world, but particularly um, illegal money. And it's about how the world's most powerful banks facilitate the worst of humanity, terrorism, human trafficking, the drug trade, and, and how the powers that be know about it. The show is hosted by Azeen Gureshi, and the investigation has been led by two BuzzFeed journalists, Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold, who's done long form before. That episode is fantastic if you have not listened. And also, speaking of long form, Suspicious Activity is produced in part by Janelle Pfeiffer, who's the editor of this show. So you know it's got to be good because Janelle worked on it. Go check it out. It's Suspicious Activity. Inside the FinCEN Files. It's a five-episode series. Episode one is out right now. Episode two will be out on Thursday. You can hear it wherever you are listening to this podcast, which starts right now. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, here with Max and Aaron, my co-hosts. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, everyone. Evan, you hosted this week's episode with whom... Did you speak? I did indeed. Uh, whom I spoke to was uh, Elizabeth Weil, uh, who I have been a huge fan of for a really long time. Liz was a contributing, she was like writer at large or contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine for years. She did an incredibly wide range of stories, amazing stories. Um, she more recently moved to ProPublica, where she's a staff writer covering climate. And she just started that sort of right before this fire season took off and immediately jumped in and started writing about that. So I wanted to talk to her about that and about her past. She's also done, as she talks about, um, some ghostwriting, including she's had uh, at least one New York Times bestseller, which is this book, The Girl Who Smiled Beads, um, which she wrote with Clementine Wamaria. And we, have no, we have never done ghostwriting on this show, have we? We got to have like a, who's the, who's America's foremost ghostwriter? We had, we got to have them on the show. Isn't there a reason we've never done that? It's like, I mean, Aaron, you've ghostwritten books, but aren't you like I not have. supposed to talk about it if you've done that? New York, New York Times bestsellers, which I will not disclose right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we t I did want to talk to her a little bit about that. And when do you want your name on the cover? And when do you not want your name on the cover? And that sort of thing. Um, and she's also the author of her own books, including one called No Cheating, No Dying, which is all about her marriage and trying to make her marriage better. So uh, we talked about that, plus a selection of stories and how her career went. It was really fun to to talk to her. I'm so glad we have her on. I think there are um, there are not many people who have more stories on long form than Liz. Like she's a, she's a prolific writer and one of them, I don't know if you talked about this at all, but I'm just going to say it now. So it's in the show notes. She wrote this piece a couple of years ago about a 70 year old guy who kayaked across the ocean. I love yeah. that story. Yeah. That's, I really, that's in there. I believe, I believe good. we discussed that. I well, like your great. technique there, Max, where you, the mentioning it for the future metadata, that's a, <laughs> it's a new wrinkle that uh, could give, uh, could give increased vigor to these introductions. Uh, and if you are as prolific as Elizabeth, you need a newsletter so people know when you're writing. Do with MailChimp. Their sponsorship has made this show possible for so many years I have lost count. Thank you to MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Elizabeth Weil. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I have seen from your Twitter that the skies have somewhat cleared over San Francisco. How to, what's it like out there right now? It's beautiful today. It's amazing. Everybody in San Francisco feels like we can keep living here. <laughs> it was pretty rough last week. Yeah, it's certainly, it seemed nightmarish from the, from the photos. I wanted to talk about that, the ProPublica piece that you just did about the fires first, because that is sort of on the top of everyone's mind, whether they're there or not. And you, you're you on staff at ProPublica now, is that right? 
Yes, I am newly on staff at ProPublica and covering climate. That's what I was going to ask you, whether your purview in joining was, I'm going to write about climate. Yes, my purview was, I'm going to write about climate in California. So the fires are right in the heart of it. And what sort of drove, I mean, you have a very eclectic story collection in terms of topics and types of people and characters and profiles. And was there something in your life that caused you to say, now I want to focus on only writing about climate? You know, I wanted a new challenge. Um, I turned 50 last summer and I had this moment of realizing I just wanted to learn new things. I wanted to write new kinds of stuff. I love writing profiles, but I didn't just want to do the same thing forever. And this seemed like a perfect way to try to do something new that could make a big difference. And does entering the climate beat, so to speak, at this point seem like there's an unbelievable number of stories to be done? Or does it seem daunting in some way because people have been trying to write about climate and change people's views of it for many, many years with some success, but in other cases, like things have gotten worse. Like, how do you sort of feel going into starting to write about it at this point? It's incredibly daunting. It's hard to write about climate well, and I'm excited to try to do it well. And people have been screaming for decades that we need to change and we haven't changed. So... And that's really what I would love to do. How do you write about climate in a way that makes people still listen when it's so depressing and makes people care enough to act? And were you already sort of into the fire story when the fires started this year, when it got out of control? Or or did you jump in when it started getting bad this year? Not at all. I was reporting out some sea level rise stories and the fire started and Robin, the deputy, just basically said, can you get us a fire story in a week? (laughs) So so I dove right in. And now I feel like I should just keep cranking out fire stories as fast as I can because people are actually listening right now. And there's a desire, at least in California, to try to do something about it, about the policy. Explain a little bit about what this story was about, the story that you cranked out in in a week. The story was about prescribed burns. Basically, the story was about talking to tons of forest ecologists about how everybody has known for decades what we need to be doing to prevent huge wildfires and how we keep not doing it. And so I just started calling people, asking them how their week was. I was really interested in what it felt like to be somebody who knew this was happening and knew this was happening for so long and then see it come to pass. So I just <laughs> I called, I think, 13 people in one day just to hear what it was like. And I found their answers really striking. And they're also at the heart of how lots of people who've been working on climate feel. They've been saying the same thing for decades. And now we're all seeing it. And it's really painful. And it's also an opportunity, I think, to maybe finally move forward. Well, that was an interesting part of the story was you got Oh, actually, it was a different, I think it was maybe the second story that you did about climate change where you got Jerry Brown on the phone. Was that the second one or the first one? That was the second one. Yes, I got Jerry on the phone. He was talking about hope and, you know, where does hope factor into this? Or you you had asked him that. And it made me think, where does it factor in for you in terms of writing about the catastrophe versus writing about solutions? Well, you know, I'm brand new to it, and so I feel like I'm really quickly going through this cycle that all climate people seem to go through, which is you're so excited to try to make a difference, and then you get incredibly overwhelmed, and then you get depressed, and then you decide you need to fight your way out of it and have some hope again. So I've been asking a lot of people about hope, I think partly because I want to figure out how to hang on to hope myself, because if you lose that no one's going to read what you have to say. It's going to be too depressing. <laughs> and but did you make a pitch to ProPublica? To, did they come to you and say, would you like to take this on? Or did you go to them sort of and say, this is something I want to focus on? No, I straight up applied for a job. Oh. I freelanced my entire career. <laughs> I had literally never applied for a job in my entire life. Uh, and they posted this job and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, really. So, yeah, I just like 
applied online for a job. Oh, wow. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not the freelancer way. No, it's not the freelancer way. And I have loved freelancing. Like, I was the biggest freelancer booster out there. But I think I also came to a moment of realizing that certain kinds of stories are really difficult to freelance. Like, you can't really freelance investigative reporting. You need funding from somewhere. It takes too long, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't, you can't freelance one story for a year. And I had started to read those stories and feel envious. Like, the competitive part of me was like, I can't compete with that as a freelancer. I have a family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a house. I have like, you know, I have to keep cranking out the words. So that was part of the change I wanted to, frankly, was, you know, I'd never had that experience. What's it like to be on staff somewhere? What do you get that's different? Well, I really feel that. I think in particular in these, in moments where there's really big stories, like crisis level stories, whether it's like coronavirus or the fires or even the political situation, there are people on staff that get turned to to say, okay, go do this big story. And you're just kind of out here pitching stories. It's very hard to pitch those kind of stories. Like they have people who do those stories and you're sort of stuck pitching the old stories at a time. And this is what I find for myself when that's not the story that you want to tell right now. Yes. Although I will say after having done a few climate stories in a row. I was watching Naomi Osaka over the weekend in the U.S. Open and feeling like, oh, I would love to write a sports profile right now. <laughs> that was like my like psychological safe space was writing sports profiles when the world got too depressing. And now I sort of felt like, okay, I need some new coping mechanisms. <laughs> well, you said you've been a freelancer your whole career. I actually, in looking back, I was looking at very old stories are the oldest ones that I could find on Nexus. And I couldn't actually sort out exactly how your career started. Sometimes it's very obvious people have that, you know, the, oh, someone was on staff at the New York Times for two years doing Metro stories. But you seem to just emerge doing long stories as far as I could tell from the very beginning. So I'm very curious, first of all, when did you get started writing at all? What was your sort of attraction to writing and journalism? You know, I took a couple writing courses in college. I grew up in the suburbs and I'm from a family where everybody's like in business and it never occurred to me that I could be a writer. And after college, I got a job editing textbooks, like kids' textbooks. Mm. And I had a boyfriend who worked at the textbook company who then quit to be a freelance writer. And somehow he convinced me that I too should quit and become a freelance writer. <laughs> was, what was the uh, argument? There's a lot of money in freelance. The argument was like, this job is boring. <laughs> we should have more fun than this, huh. which was true. Uh, so anyway, I quit my job. I lived in Chicago at the time, which was really cheap. So you could quit your job and work at a coffee shop and be a freelance writer if you lived cheaply enough. So that's what I did. And I wrote quizzes for teen magazines. Wow. <laughs> I guess those don't turn up on Lexus. <laughs> um, I freelanced for literally anybody who would have me. Like, I wrote for the Chicago Reader. I wrote for the Boston Phoenix. I just pitched literally everybody all the time. And there was no, like, moment. There was no staff job. It was just a slog. Literally, like... Forever, but I loved the slog, you know, and I worked really hard and I really, I really wanted it. And when you first started, did you project forward, this is the kind of writer I want to be or this is what I want to be writing about? Or was it so just story by story that you never thought about that? I wanted to write long form, like I want to write magazine articles and I didn't care what the topic was. And in some ways, I've always been somebody who just loved being able to follow what I was interested in more than I wanted a particular beat. So, no, the vision was just like, I want to write for magazines and I want to write well, I loved magazines. Like, I have this memory of being in college and reading Sarah Corbett's story on The Lost Boys and just feeling like that is what I want to do. That's amazing.
Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Was there any point that you can remember where you thought, I've made it, I'm a freelance writer, like, here I am. <laughs> Does any freelance writer ever feel like uh, that? Someone no. must. That made it, like, totally successful, but, like, I think there's a lot of people cross a point where they stop saying, I'm going to have to do something else. Like, did you have a point where you said, oh, okay, this is my career, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to be a freelance writer, this is going to work? Or did it always feel like it was on the verge of not working? You know, it's not that it being a writer felt on the verge of not working. But I always, like most people, did things other than just write magazine articles. Like I ghost wrote books so I could make enough of a living to live in a house and have kids. I'm married to a writer, too, so there was no backup. (laughs) So I... I don't know if I ever got to the point that I felt like I can just write magazine articles, even though I felt like I could pitch magazine articles and get them assigned and keep myself busy writing magazine articles full time. It just felt, I live in San Francisco, it was never going to be enough money without doing something else some of the time. And how did you balance the other things some of the time, especially being also married to a freelancer? Was it kind of like one for you, one for me situation? Or how do you make that work, you know, financially when you are doing these outside projects, but you also have your own true career that you want to pursue? Yeah, you know, we seem to just be very intuitive about it. There was never like a calendar of like, this is my year, this is your year. So, and maybe that's the issue. We aren't like big planners that way. So there was never, you know, like a grand plan for how it was all going to go. It was, I think fear has always been a big motivator. (laughs) (laughs) You know, time to pitch the next thing or really time to say yes to the next thing. Like with the ghostwriting projects, there was a lot of saying no to stuff until it just became more important to say yes. Are there a lot of ghostwritten Liz Wilde books out there? I mean, I know about the the one that has your name on it, um, but how many others are there ones that your name's nowhere attached to them? There are a few others. I ghostwrote Kirsten Gillibrand's memoir. I've done a couple athletes. There aren't a ton of them, but there were enough, and it's an easier way to make some money. You know, it's quicker per word than the magazine stuff. Is it your preference that your name be associated with it or not be associated with it? Or is it case by case? 
You know, I think it's case by case. I think there's a strong argument for both. You know, if you want to write something really fast, maybe you don't want your name on it. I don't know. I seem to be somebody without a lot of hard and fast rules for my life. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's a little disturbing. <laughs> maybe we can fix that right now. But you, I always, what's one of the things that I would see your stories and just say, oh, wow, she's written about that. She's written about that. She's written about that. And you seem to be able to tackle any topic. <laughs> well, I think that's like the great pleasure of freelancing is that you can just follow what you're interested in and you're not locked into anything. So I think I also always felt like that was a perk that I could pitch what I was interested in. And if you really listen to people and if you are interested in it, then I think you can always write something good if you work hard. And was there, did you ever find there was a sort of through line in the stories that you, you ended up choosing that, did you feel like you were looking for something in any, in choosing particular stories? You know, more than looking for something globally, I feel like I would look for the point of connection in the story. Like, where am I in this story? Why was I drawn to this story? Like, I think that I would be drawn to like this guy who kayaked across the Atlantic three times. And there would be something in me that was drawn to him. And I would often try to sort of dig in myself for what that was and then try to make that central in the piece in some way of just like, what do I in particular have to bring to this topic? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think all this came from an experience really early in my career where I pitched a book about some guys building a private spaceship in the Mojave Desert. And it was a great book, and I got a book contract for it, but it was not a great book for me. Mm. I didn't really connect with mm -hmm. it. And I think it was this major lesson that just because something's a good topic doesn't mean it's a good topic for you as a particular writer necessarily. And then I think I became committed to finding that in my stories or backing away from them. So I think less than I was looking for something globally, I was looking for where I really related to it. Like with the ghost ship story I wrote, I wound up thinking a lot about parental grief and what it meant to be a parent, which wasn't the obvious place to come at that story from, but that's where my heart really was. And that story, it's weird to say that's one of my favorite stories of the last few years since it's just a brutal read. I was rereading again last night. It's, it just, it has momentum towards a place that you know is awful. And then it kind of passes beyond that. But I guess for people who don't remember or don't, aren't familiar, maybe just recap what the ghost ship fire was. Yeah. So there was this warehouse party, 36 people died. And there was a huge need in the Bay Area to have accountability for this, to do something with all of the grief. And two people were arrested. There was an older guy, Derek Almina, and a younger guy named Max Harris. And I wound up writing the profile mostly about Max Harris. He was charged with 36 counts of manslaughter, essentially for killing his friends and I found that predicament so unbearable to even think about that somehow that's the angle I came to the story from. Just uh, And then I sort of followed him. I spent a lot of time interviewing him in Santa Rita Jail. And the story ran before the trial, but then I went to the trial and he ended up getting acquitted. Yeah, it seemed like, uh, I mean, it's a hard story to tell because you know that there's this grief on the other side, like you said, the parental grief of the people who had lost their kids feature prominently, you know, and they they obviously want answers. And did you, going into it, a story like that, do you feel like you need to kind of decide where you stand before you get into it or that you figure that out as you go along or you don't want it to to kind of indicate where you stand? I didn't want to figure out where I stood, per se, before I started reporting it. And I also felt like it wasn't my job to be the voice of justice, exactly. I felt like it was my job to try to 
chronicle what happened. And I also knew going in I was going to fail. You know, there was too much loss. There were too many people who died. Every one of those lives could have been the subject of a profile. And I heard from a lot of families after who were upset, which I knew was going to happen, about the choice to focus on one of the defendants who lived Mm -hmm. instead of somebody who died. And that was really painful. But I didn't feel like... I came at it knowing I wanted to tell this one story, that I wanted to stay close to Max Harris more than I came to it knowing where I wanted the story to land. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, I think from the national press, he was not a sympathetic figure, but he sort of, he does come through as an extremely sympathetic figure in the story. You said it was painful to hear from the parents. Did you, how long do they stick with you? You know, do you carry them beyond that? Or are you a person who kind of like at a certain point ties them off and, and moves on? No, I carry them. In fact, there's a parent who engages with me on Twitter a lot, Mm. and I'm actually really grateful for it. She sort of reminds me to be grateful for everything my kids do, that I still have them, you know? So I don't think you really move on fully. And while it's really painful to hear from this mother, I truly... I'm truly grateful for it, and I also feel like I have a responsibility to stay engaged. You know, as a reporter, you move from one story to the next. But if that's your loss and that's your family, you do not move from one story to the next. And if, as a reporter, you decide to, you know, to step out there and say your piece on a topic that is so central to somebody's life, I do think you carry some responsibility to stay engaged. The other story that in a similar way seemed to have a kind of a life that went on maybe more unexpectedly was this Mary Kane story. Can we talk about that story Oh my gosh, Mary Kane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. So Mary Kane was like a young running prodigy that I wrote about. I pitched that story. It was one of my like, oh, this is going to be so great. I'm going to write about a young female athlete. I love writing those stories. Mm-hmm. And... I feel like there are a lot of lessons in it. From the beginning, I did not get nearly the access I expected to get, which was like in the back of my mind weird. But I also thought, oh, she's young and people are protective. And she was a Nike athlete and Nike didn't give me very good access. And she was on Alberto Salazar's team and he didn't give me good access. He's the coach. He was the coach who is now, you know, totally discredited as a huge dope pusher. Anyway, I wrote the story. It was fine. It was fun to write. People liked reading it, whatever. It was all good. And then last year, Mary Kane did an op doc with The Times, basically talking about all she had been unable to say, not just to me in particular, but in in that period of her life, all that she had been unable to say about her experience as a Nike athlete on that team. And I did not know this story was coming out ahead of time. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know. I assume they (laughs) would have given you a heads up on that. So I was very surprised when it came out. And at first I felt defensive. And I, you know, I had lots and lots of feelings about it because, oh, I don't know. I had missed the story. Mary wasn't at a moment where she was going to tell me the story, but I had missed the story. So that story's had a big afterlife because it's Mary then coming out and telling people what actually happened, got a ton of traction, which was really important and really moved the ball forward. But I, so I wound up really arguing and finally winning that the Times should put a note with my magazine story that all these things had come out after. I just wanted readers who came to it you know, more recently, if they did, to have some context about what this was, that it didn't need a retraction or a correction. It wasn't wrong at the time. But, you know, a lot had changed. Yeah, when you said that you weren't getting the access that you were looking for, was it the kind of situation where you you had a sort of bad feeling about it, even when it finished, like something's not right here, or that what they were telling you was just flat out lies? And so, as far as you knew, well, there's another sports story. I finished it. Like when the op doc came out, did you feel like, aha, this is what was in my gut about this? Or did it, was it totally blindsiding? 
it wasn't totally blindsiding in that, like, lots of stuff had come out about Mary's coach and that Nike program over the years. But some things had happened while I was writing that I wished I had listened to more. Like, I had an incredibly hard time writing that story. Like, I did not understand why it was so hard. And I remember talking with writer friends and my editor and everybody of just like, this story is terrible. Why is this story terrible? Why can't I do it? Which is always a red flag, mm. you know, of just like, if you can't write it, something's wrong. You know, something's wrong with your reporting. Something's wrong with something. So I wish in hindsight I had listened to that more. But at the same time, it would have been a little bit hard to act on and that it was my job just to finish the story and I didn't have better information and I wasn't going to get better information in anything like the time frame I was given to produce that piece. Mm -hmm. um, but I am a big believer in if you can't write something, you don't know what you're saying or you don't know what you want to say or you have to go do some more reporting that for me at least, I think the block is in the thinking more than in, you know, putting the words in the right order. So when you normally sit down after reporting, does that part come fairly fairly easily if you do have enough and you do know what you want to say? The writing? Yeah. <laughs> I do an unbelievable amount of just like thinking through stories without turning them into sentences. Like I'll just sort of like open a, a document and I'll write like, one line of what I think the story is really about and then I'll like sit with that and then I'll write like just like a phrase for what each section is and then I'll sit with that and then I'll start like filling in notes and I'll keep like looping through and looping through and looping through that by the point I'm actually turning it on to sentences I've done 98% of the work so I more hmm. experience the block in the earlier parts of like, this feels wrong. I don't know what I'm saying. This argument doesn't make sense. Does that sort of just morph into the piece or does that get thrown out and then you write the piece? You actually No, like, that just like morphs into the piece. It's like, mm. it's a weird process I have, but there's never a point where like, then I open a different document and start writing from the top. It's more that those notes and that sort of flow gradually turns into sentences that I like. When you're out reporting, so before that point, do you find that you're sort of taking the same approach, whether it's a sports profile, like a Venus Williams, like celebrity-ish athlete profile versus something like the ghost ship story? Or like, do you feel like you're adopting the same reportorial persona or that you have sort of different strategies in different environments? You know, I feel like celebrity profiles are a little different in that they tell you you have some, you know, insanely small amount of time. Like I wrote a Kamala Harris profile last year and they're like, you have half an hour. <laughs> like, that was half an hour. <laughs> like, okay. Because normally my process is just like try to talk to whoever it is absolutely as much as possible and just sit there and listen and be interested. But, it, you know, that doesn't really work with a celebrity where they're not going to give you that kind of time and they're too rehearsed anyway. But my reporting process, I don't know, it's a little bit like my writing process. And in some ways, I feel like it comes out of ghostwriting. Like, I'll, I'll go interview somebody, I'll come home, I'll sort of think about it. And then I'll think about, you know, what else I need and whatever. You go through your initial set of interviews. And then I'll go back to what I have and think about what details or like what smaller points I'm trying to fill in, which is a big part of ghostwriting. You know, someone will tell you the rough outlines of a story, and if you want to write a scene about it, you have to ask them every single little question. You know, mm -hmm. what color was your shirt, this or that or the other thing. And so particularly with that ghost ship story, that happened a lot. Like Max, the main subject, would tell me about something that happened, and I'd go through and I'd pour through my transcripts, and i think, oh, I'd like to really like blow out this scene. So what else do I need now? And obviously with celebrities, they're never going to do that with you. 
Right. So you're it's an iterative process basically with with a non-celebrity. Yes, I seem to have a very iterative process. <laughs> well, that makes me wonder about the ghostwriting side of it because then how do you I'm very interested in the balance of how much the person wants you to write it and just hand it to them versus how much it's actually collaborative like you're writing some, they're writing some or you're passing it back and forth. Like how has that worked? Like you have this book, The Girl Who Smiled Beads, which is a New York Times bestseller. And that, I mean, that's fully someone else's story that it feels like you would have to inhabit in that way and use that iterative process. Yes. Uh, In my experience of ghostwriting, there's not a lot of passing back and forth. Hmm. There's a lot of listening deeply to somebody's stories and then trying to stick very close to their voice and their experience as you write it. You know, I Kirsten Gillibrand was actually incredibly engaged with writing her memoir more than anybody else I've ever worked with. Mm. But in general, my experience has been that somebody has an amazing story and your job as a ghostwriter is kind of midwifing it. It's not that different than profile writing to me, honestly. It's, you know, first person versus third person. And... It's not your job to project quite as much onto the shape of the story when you're ghostwriting as opposed to being a journalist. But it's still your job to make a coherent narrative and readable book out of out of someone else's life. I mean, they obviously have ultimate control, I guess, over their story. So I would think in a profile, you're writing to an editor and you're, you might be disputing back and forth. I think we should keep this scene or keep this detail or they want to cut them for various reasons. And then do you do that with the subject of a ghostwritten book or do you just say, okay, fine. If you don't want that, that's fine. Or do you find yourself pushing for a certain, for certain things to be in maybe that they don't want in? With the girl who smiled beads in particular, it was less pushing for things to be in that they didn't want in than trying to argue why things would be valuable in a book. So, yes, obviously you're not going to have something in the final manuscript that the co-author doesn't want in there, but your experience as a writer is part of what is helpful, and so your experience of knowing what kinds of scenes have impact and even just when it's important to try to dig a little deeper emotionally for a reader, for something to really land. I think there's a lot of back and forth. Well, does it help that you also have written a book about yourself that's very personal? (laughs) I I think so in a way, and just sort of knowing what really digging means and how hard it is and how vulnerable it all feels like ghostwriting relationships can get so intense. Like you're someone's like analyst, basically (laughs) you talk to them about like really personal parts of their life, like every day for hours and you're asking them to be vulnerable and expose themselves in certain ways to the world. So I think having gone through that really is important. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about your experience, though, um, because <laughs> sure. right in the middle of all this reporting and all these profiles and stories that you've done over the years, you also wrote a book, very personal book about yourself and your husband called No Cheating, No Dying. And I don't want to ask you like all the questions that you got asked when that book came out, which I'm sure you've you've done ad nauseum. But I am very interested in w- at what point you decided I am going to do this in a public way or not do it in a public way, but like we're, we're going to work on our marriage and I am going to turn that into a book and what led to that decision. Sure. Well, okay. So I brought up that book. I wrote about the guys building the rocket ship in the desert. Mm -hmm. After I wrote that book, I decided I needed to write things that were like in the heart of my life that I cared about intensely. So I had promised myself if I ever wrote a book again, that was the criteria. It had to be like super in the heart of my life. And then we had two kids and I also felt like I need to write a book that's in the heart of my life that I can write from my home, (laughs) to be totally honest. Uh, You mean not travel? Not travel. Like 
I went on reporting trips with like an infant and I made my mother come at the beginning when my second kid was born. And it was exhausting, as everybody knows. So I really wanted to write a book that I could, you know, get really inside of that would work in my life. So, yeah, I wrote a book about my marriage. And as your husband being a writer, I feel like there could be two possible responses or three possible responses. One is great. Let's do this. One is no, I don't want you putting our married life out there. And the third one, which is, uh, I should write it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) which, well, I had a phase of thinking that he should annotate the book. Like later this dream partly came true a tiny bit. And I wrote an essay about my teenage daughter and she annotated it. Yeah. In California Sunday. Yeah. I had been wanting to do something like that for years. So part of me wanted the marriage book to be that way, but obviously that's not what happened. So I would never have written the book if Dan wasn't okay (laughs) with the book and if he hadn't read the book and if he hadn't read the book many times. And because he's a writer, I think he really like understood all the ins and outs of how you come to write any book and why anybody would write this book. And so, no, there wasn't like a battle over like he wanted to write that book. He he did not want to write that book, but he certainly read that book and was, you know, comfortable with it. There was nothing in that book he hadn't read first and anything he didn't want in there came out. And did you, when it came out, did you have people pouring their own stories of their marriage out to you? A little bit. So basically a version of it came out in the Times Magazine before the actual book came out. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that was like the biggest kaboom because the number of people who read the Times sort of dwarfs the number of books almost any of us sell. And no one throws your book at everybody's doorstep on Sunday morning. So right after that piece came out, there were a lot of people, yeah, sort of telling me about their marriage or people saying, oh, you don't have to be embarrassed around me. Somehow (laughs) someone said that to me the morning (laughs) the piece came out and it totally caught me off guard. I hadn't somehow perhaps stupidly like occurred to me to be embarrassed. I felt vulnerable. I felt like a lot of things. But um, people projected a whole lot onto that piece and onto the book. So it helped to remember that everybody is also talking about their own lives when they talk to you about a book you wrote about your marriage. (laughs) Right. Did you have any regret about getting that personal or going that deep into your own life? You know, maybe I should, but I don't. <laughs> you know, I feel like as a journalist, you're endlessly asking people to tell you really personal stuff about their lives and really open, vulnerable stuff about their lives. And I f- feel like you have to be willing to be in that conversation too or really think about why you're not willing. And your daughters were younger then, obviously. I think it was the book came out 10 years ago, I want to say, or the around then? Yeah, they were really little then. So what is what is their awareness of, of the book? Or, or, they know the book exists, and they're like, I am never going to read that. <laughs> <laughs> Someday they will, though, don't you think? A book specifically about your parents' marriage? Like at some point in your life, you'd want to read that. Oh, I don't know. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Like, I I feel like a lot of children of writers don't really want to read their parents' work, period. Yeah, I just feel like, I guess there's certain details you, you never want to know, but... Um... <laughs> I don't know, maybe they'll read it, and maybe I'll have a big moment of regret then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, though. I don't know. That, like, the extent to which my children don't want to read my writing is pretty... Big. (laughs) Well, you did get, you got one daughter to annotate a story, so you did get her that interested. Yes. And that daughter wants to be a writer, which is interesting. But I still think she wants, oh, I don't know, in a healthy way. She wants to be like in her own head with her own voice, and it's enough to have her, you know, write her parents talk about writing every night at dinner. 
So it's not that she never reads anything. It's just that they're not, like, dying to read every word we write. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Although I do sometimes just, like, I'll be stuck, and I'll, sometimes it really helps just to have a reader of anything, and I'll just, like, text Hannah, my older daughter, like, the lead of a story, and she's like, okay, Mom, it's fine. And then <laughs> she carries on. <laughs> and does that is that enough for you to feel feel good about it? That kind of uh, cursory glance? You know, I feel like, I don't know if this is true for you and everybody else, but I feel like just the act of sending something out in the world for somebody else to read or that they could possibly read helps me see it better. So yeah, it's enough to have just hit send, even if she doesn't even read it, which she knows. So she doesn't, uh, I think, feel overly burdened to <laughs> edit or anything. I just get like an emoji if I'm lucky. All right. One last thing on this. I don't want to belabor this, but it's challenging to be a freelance writer and it's challenging to work at home all the time. Now, everyone's working at home all the time, obviously, but you have for many years, you could, I feel, write a how-to guide about two people working at home in the same house because your husband's also a freelance writer. But I mean, freelance writers are also like, it's challenging. There's a lot of rejection. There's competition. Like, how have you managed to balance having two writers in the same household who are basically like there all day working on their stuff. <laughs> well, we used to have our desks like in adjoining rooms and now Dan works in like the attic and I work in the basement, mm. which has been very healthy <laughs> to be like as physically far apart as possible in the house. And we don't just go interrupt each other like we used to, like He'll send a text or I'll send a text. Can, you know, I come talk about this now? He's also an incredibly good cook. So I get a text every day that just says lunch, <laughs> which wow, is amazing. And then I run upstairs and eat lunch. I don't know. We, we have certainly dealt with all of this stuff, all of the competition and all of the jealousy and all of the everything. And it's not that it goes away, but oh, I don't know, I think you just get a little more perspective on yourself and a little more perspective on the the ups and downs of life that we all have and each other's strengths and weaknesses. It all sounds so corny, but it gets easier if you do it for a long time. And I'm a big believer in boundaries. <laughs> so that's our plan. <laughs> well, I, f I feel like the whole world is learning about work at home boundaries now or not learning yes, about have, it. Have boundaries. The other thing, which we all now know some, but it's like, don't listen to your spouse talk on the phone. That's how you will end your marriage. <laughs> so if you listen to your spouse talk on the phone too much, somehow that's the thing that's the most grating in <laughs> our house. And so if we can just have like space, you don't hear each other talk on the phone. It's all good. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more thing about sort of like your collection of stories that you've done, because it feels like you've done a number that are about people who are, they go on these sort of epic journeys or challenges, like someone who walked 10,000 miles and Diana Nyad, who, you know, swimming across uh, stretches of ocean. Then you've got the guy who kayaked across the Atlantic three times. And I'm wondering... Since you, you know, after the rocket book, you looked for stories that you found something in you uh, that was connected to him. What is it in you that's connected to this kind of epic challenge? That's a really good question, because I lead like a pretty normal, mellow life. But I think I'm really interested in the extremes and how it feels to be compelled to do something that much and the kind of yearning to do something great. <laughs> I mean, I should really stress, I just lead a really normal life here in my little house. But I find that super compelling, and I find the, the idea that there is freedom by just, like, going for it, by pushing yourself to do something that is totally unnecessary that you have just decided you want to do, that you're not doing for anybody else, nobody cares, that there's there's freedom in just going for it anyway. I somehow, that idea just really compels me and sticks with me. And do you ever do it? Do you have a thing in which you do that? 
I kind of don't. And maybe I'll like bust out of all this and do it. I like knowing that it's out there. I like talking to people about it. And maybe I will. Maybe that's my next chapter after I write about climate. I'll go like on some extreme quest and find my freedom. Maybe writing about climate is that. Maybe it is. Maybe that is my my kayak across the Atlantic. <laughs> well, uh, I'm excited to read what comes next. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. That is all for this week's show. Thank you to Elizabeth Weil for uh, coming on the show from San Francisco. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. My fellow co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Chanel Pfeiffer. Our intern is Susan Peterson. And our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.